Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. I use she, her, hers pronouns, and today I'm joined by Molly Sheehan, scientist and Democratic candidate for the United States House of Representatives in Pennsylvania's 7th. Thanks for coming on, Molly. Thank you so much for having me, Jordan Valerie. It's a pleasure. Yeah, of course. Could you tell us about your background and why you're running for Congress now? Yeah, I'd love to. I am a bioengineer. I work as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania, where I develop new tools for tracking genes through the body, doing like gene therapy for cancer treatment. And I love my research. This wasn't my life plan, but like many people, I was incredibly disturbed by the rhetoric that happened uh, through the campaign of 2016, in particular, the national excusing of that Access Hollywood tape where Trump bragged about sexually assaulting women. And I have a daughter. I have a three-year-old married to an immigrant. And I want better for her. I want better for our children. I want her to grow up in a country where she feels safe and empowered. It felt necessary to step up at this moment and be a voice of empathy and be a voice for women and girls so that she and other girls like her will have a better future. Recently, you wrote a really incredible and thoughtful op-ed on the crisis of sexual abuse in Congress and how we need to take a firm stand against sexual predators, regardless of party affiliation. Since then, we have seen major resignations from party figures like John Conyers and Al Franken. How do you think members of Congress should be addressing this crisis? I mean, one of the things we're seeing with the John Conyers case and I actually think that's like the most important case that's happened recently is that it opened it opens people's eyes to how institutionalized the suppression of women's voices is within the halls of Congress and that we see similar problems at the state level, too. And everyone's opening their eyes up to it. You know, they have to go through mandatory mediation and all these stages. And there's not really protections for the, those women when they report. And so, you, I mean, you see these incredible obstacles put up for women actually reporting their abuses at work when they are harassed. I'm happy to see someone like Conyers, uh, who abused the system and used taxpayer dollars to pay off his victims, uh, held accountable. And I hope it happens at all the state levels also, and that we can make government a safe place for women. Because, I mean, that's the other side of representation for women is, you know, people are, some people are afraid, sad about someone like Franken resigning because, you know, I also liked his votes and I liked him prior to this. But, you know, I'm even more saddened by all of the women, all the legislative aides, all of these people over the years who probably left politics because it wasn't a safe place for them, who maybe could have been even more powerful voices. And I find that to be a much more sad reality than someone like Al Franken resigning. Agreed. It's really important to center the women and the victims here rather than the men who abuse them. Absolutely. Yeah. And something that's happening right now is CNN and the Washington Post are investigating up to 40 members of Congress for sexual abuse, meaning that we could see many more resignations very soon. Some Democrats are very concerned about that because it potentially means losing a lot of votes. Of course, Republicans are too, but 
Democrats are in the minority right now. In Michigan, the Republican governor is refusing to hold a special election for John Conyers' seat until the 2018 midterms, meaning that Michigan's predominantly black and Democratic 13th congressional district will not be represented in the House. This is a widely undemocratic move and one that frightens a lot of Democrats, especially since the majority of governors in the United States are Republicans, even a lot of them in blue states. How would you respond to those who worry that ousting tens of sexual abusers, including in the Democratic Party, will hurt Democrats? That shouldn't be our focus. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of the right to choose, and I understand our legislative battles, but I think in the long run, we're going to lose more elections also if we don't claim a path of morality. With an example of something like John Conyers, the idea that somehow, you know, what we see are Al Franken, that somehow his victim, their victims have created this problem for women, I think is a really false narrative where the problem is these men abused women that we entrusted them with the responsibility of representing us uh, in, in Washington. It's this huge responsibility. They weren't able to live their lives with the level of dignity and respect for women that's necessary for that position. And I think it's more important that we create a cultural change and we hold our elected officials accountable because if, if people like them, if you know, or if there's more sexual harassers, I'm sure they're on both sides of the aisle. If they're not held accountable, then we're sending a message that there's no cons real life consequences for doing these things. And that sends a message throughout society that these types of acts are that they're appropriate. And so we shouldn't excuse any acts or, you know, bury our heads in the sand for any acts that we wouldn't be comfortable being perpetuated to our own children, because that's really what we're asking for. And it's more important than a single ses legislative session. But I mean, the other side of that is Pennsylvania, we have 18 congressmen and 13 of them are Republicans. So here we have a much better chance of it just by the numbers of it being Republicans that are going to be held accountable. And if that happens, we have a Democratic governor. And so I think that the idea of trying to do the calculus on this is not the right goal. We should be having a path of zero tolerance and really pushing for cultural change that will make our country safe for women. And that should be a bipartisan issue. There have been recent calls by some members of Congress to investigate Donald Trump for his sexual abuse, which he obviously bragged about on tape. Would you support that? Absolutely. I think anybody, any elected official should be open to investigation for sexual abuse of women. And I don't think any elected official should be considered above the law in that they can personally abuse whoever they want because of their elected position. Now, in terms of legislation, what would you hope to do as a member of Congress to advocate for sexual assault survivors and victims? Like I mentioned with the John Conyers case, I think that's really opened people's eyes to, especially within government, what needs to be done in terms of, you know, getting rid of these mandatory mediation periods and making sure that victims aren't financially harmed for reporting. But it is hard. But I mean, we need more oversight and we need to remove those types of laws. And we need to make sure that those types of things also happen at the corporate level and that there is a path of reporting that doesn't lead to economic consequences for the women. At this point, we're really seeing for the most part, the ousting of cartoon villain level harassment and abuse, things like Matt Lauer and the button under his desk. And, you know, I think as we start opening the gates more, we're going to see more 
of the type of abuse many women face in their daily lives. It's a sum of parts. Like for most women, it's not a single offense. It's the constant degradation at work and things that lead to men not promoting them, say, if then it ruins their you know personal relationship with the person because of very light on one and touching on shoulders and backs and you know things that are less overt. And I think there needs to be roots uh, for companies and in the government for women to report the smaller acts, maybe not as a major violation, but so that the company can talk to somebody, you know, many women have reported that they're uncomfortable with this thing you do, you need to stop doing it. And so that there's paths for that kind of remedy also within the government and with within companies. So a lot of folks aren't happy that you're focusing on the Me Too movement. Ever since the election, we've seen Democrats embrace this myth of the white working class and say that quote unquote identity politics are alienating voters who might otherwise swing Democratic. You, on the other hand, have rightfully said that it's important for Democrats not to compromise their values just to appeal to bigots and extremists who haven't truly considered voting Democratic for decades. One word in particular you use is intersectionality, and I think that's really key to understanding how the Democratic Party should move forward, particularly in the aftermath of the recent elections in Virginia and across the country, where we saw diverse candidates defeat bigoted conservatives despite identity-based attacks, largely through turning out marginalized voters. Could you explain what intersectionality is and how you're incorporating it into your platform and messaging? Yeah. I mean, so to me, everything is intersectional with economic justice. If people don't have the ability to financially support themselves, they can't ever truly have full freedoms and they can't make change for their communities. You know, if we keep people struggling for their daily economic life, they don't have the ability to be change makers for their own communities and they don't have the abilities to defend themselves. A lot of the violence we see in society has economic roots and economic repercussions. And so when people say we shouldn't be talking about identity politics or women's issues or people of color, it's a dog whistle for saying we should just be focusing on white men. It's inappropriate. The idea that somehow if we just focus on the white working class and the men of the white working class and their economic security, that we'll be able to bring a coalition while we leave out actually the majority of Americans, then that's a problem. And a lot of the a lot of the problems that both minorities and women face are intersectional with one another, that our plights are tied and that we're all fed this what I call the essential lie of our oppression, which is that we have to play by the rules of the powerful in order to get ahead to make it right for the next generation. And I think that we see this with like the Franken defense from a lot of the people on the left that they think, well, we need him to pass the laws to make it right for the next generation. Or we need all of these powerful men, white men and making these laws so that then we can get in later and make things better. And then it'll be better because they're fighting for us as surrogates. I think it's a lie. It's the idea that we shouldn't be representing ourselves, that we don't need surrogates. We need allies and allies amplify our voices and that all of us deserve seats at the table. Minorities deserve seats at the table, non-binary people and trans people and LGBT community and women. We all deserve seats at the table and that are the things that get passed off as social issues really are economic issues. And in particular, in the Me Too movement, 
it's so apparent that, and I mean, this is true for racial justice also, that the idea that it's not economic is ridiculous. It's actually an economic issue that affects 51% of the population from migrant workers all the way to CEOs, where if when women are not safe or uncomfortable or biased against in the workforce, we suffer across the board economically. And so it is a fundamental economic issue for 51% of women. And I think that's part of why you see the strength of the Me Too movement that you know, women are having a growing solidarity with one another because we recognize that, that this is our future. Another part of this whole fight for justice is, of course, immigration. Immigrants, particularly undocumented immigrants, are one of the main targets of the right. And we've seen a lot of Democrats and even a few Republicans advocate for the passage of some iteration of the DREAM Act. But even that wouldn't create a pathway to citizenship for all undocumented immigrants. Just the select few who check off the right boxes that kind of make them worthwhile in a capitalist society. Uh, The DREAM Act also wouldn't solve the issue of ICE, which is America's deportation system or the abusive immigration detention system. What would you do in Congress to help all undocumented Americans, including those who don't necessarily have a spotless record and wouldn't have been eligible for DACA or DAPA? Yeah, so I am in favor of the DREAM Act, but you're right. That's for this very specific subpopulation that is not the majority of our immigration problem, where immigrants come in, they do work that benefits our society, and they have no route to documentation, and they're exploited. In turn, businesses don't pay them enough, and then some of those jobs maybe Americans would do if they paid a living wage. I mean, first, I think we need to focus on the companies that are actually benefiting from the exploitation. Neither poor American workers, unemployed, nor undocumented immigrants are the beneficiaries of this system. Generally, it's the corporations that are exploiting labor that they can pay under minimum wage. They're finding a way of skirting our laws. And so they need to be held accountable. I think that when we talk about immigration as a country, we tend to talk about the extremes and it polarizes people into one of the two camps where some some people just want sanctuary for everyone or sanctuary cities. And to me, sanctuary cities are just a band-aid to a problem where they just expand the shadows which people are living. And logical conclusion of that as a policy would be a sanctuary country, which we absolutely can't have and implement social programs that we want and, you know, have the police be able to know what's happening. And people will still be exploited. People don't need shadows. They need to be able to come out of them. Citizenship I don't think is the right solution for everybody. I think what we need is a process of work permitting. So giving people work visas who are here contributing to our society and taking away the shadows from people so that they can come out and get a work permit. We know who's doing what jobs. We can start assessing which companies need which labor and really have like a full national economic assessment to say which work visas should we be renewing? Which ones, you know, should these companies be paying more? The way we have a conversation with the H-1B visa program for higher skilled labor, that we need to have that conversation for uh, lower paying jobs that we're just not having right now. We're just kind of ignoring things in the shadows. So going back to your state and your district, as you mentioned, 13 of the 18 Pennsylvania House representatives are Republican. And that's in part due to gerrymandering. Your state is highly gerrymandered, but your district in particular, it's not even uh, congruous. And of course, as a candidate, you can't change this. But how would you fight gerrymandering as a member of Congress, and just overall try to make our systems of elections truly democratic? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so the 7th Congressional District is the literal poster child of gerrymandering. 
by some measures, it's the worst district. Uh, it's definitely the most visually egregious district. I mean, the reality is for Pennsylvania, it needs to be solved at a state level through the courts or through state legislation, um, which I mean, I do personally support an independent districting committee to make it so it's not a partisan project, a partisan process. So lawmakers aren't choosing their voters, voters are choosing their lawmakers the way it should be, and that communities aren't divided. I mean, it's really sad as I travel through the seventh that a lot of people feel completely disenfranchised. They've been cut out of their school district and they can't talk if they have a federal problem, they can't talk to their legislature. But at a federal level, what we can also do is make it easier to vote. We can you know, implement better voter rights acts. We can have conversations about what it means to move to paper ballots or personally verified electronic voting, having multi-day voting or early voting. We need to make it so that it's not a Tuesday when people can't take off work all the time or there's long lines, all these obstacles to voting. We need to make it as easy as possible. I mean, the reality is a lot of these things need to be instituted currently at the state level. And Pennsylvania is pretty bad. But I do think there's things we can do at the federal level, especially in terms of funding. Like no state should be too poor to properly fund uh, elections with integrity, which is what we see in some states. Like their voting machines are outdated and things like that. And I think there needs to be federal money that can support states that can't afford to have integrity in their elections. And in your district, the Republican incumbent is Patrick Meehan, who votes in line with Trump almost 90% of the time. What are your thoughts on Meehan? And were you inspired at all to run because of his failure to truly represent your district? Yeah. So, I mean, he's a party guy. I will say, I don't think that he's tied to Trump as much as he's Paul, tied to Paul Ryan, that he gets permission from Paul Ryan to vote against the party when he does. Like, you'll never see Pat Meehan vote against a bill that the Republicans want to pass and then have it fail. He'll never be the breaking vote. He only votes against it when he's been given permission not to because it would be unpopular in his district. And we saw that with things like the AHCA, the healthcare bill where he voted it through committee, but then was allowed to, and hid and then was allowed to vote against it. Yeah, he pretends he's he does not as powerful as he is, I think. And he just defers all of his votes to Paul Ryan, he doesn't give a voice to the people at all. And I think it's gotten a lot worse since Trump was elected and since the Republicans have been asked to govern now that they're in charge. I think he kind of got a pass before because the Democrat had more power with Obama. Now the spotlight's on him and he's failing this moral test where he's given all of these bills and he just keeps voting for him. I mean, he's one of the architects of this tax scam. He's not only on the Ways and Means Committee, he's on the subcommittee on tax policy. And he even pushed it with Paul Ryan in the district. It's one of the few times he's made public appearances in the last couple of years was to push this bill. Yeah, I'm absolutely inspired to run against him. He is the worst of politics. He's pushing bills that hurt the working class and isn't even meeting his constituents face to face. He's representing D.C., not the people of Pennsylvania. So something that tends to go ignored in a lot of elections is science. There were almost no discussions of climate change, even in the Democratic presidential primary in 2016. And I'm wondering how your perspective as a scientist affects your campaign? Yeah. Um, so I would say, I mean, I believe in climate change. It's real. Um, and I do think it's a it's a hard topic to talk about with voters because it's such a huge problem that it's almost hard for people to wrap their head around like the impending problems that can come. And also because it's unpredictable in some ways. There's all these tipping points that we can hit that could accelerate it. There's not like some clear thing like this will happen and it makes it so people kind of dissociate from it. I tend to talk about it more 
as a national security issue in terms of it's not just that you're you know, where we live will be warmer. It's that we already see food shortages worldwide and that um, the seventh is a strong veterans community. And it's like, do you really want your kids to be deployed to the Sudan and, you know, places that we see conflict as a result of food shortages, as a result of global warming, because we didn't curb our effects of climate change. But Actually, in my district, the thing that it gives me the biggest advantage talking about is we have a pipeline that's being run through people's backyards. And actually, I met with one man who's a big advocate with it, who was so relieved to be able to skip the two hours he's had to do with other legislators trying to explain the science behind the pipeline and why it's so dangerous and why it has such a big blast zone um, and that we actually got to dive into the politics behind it because, you know, I understood it right away. And I think that's important in Congress that a lot of times things like this come up and you have to know in real time how to ask the right questions when the experts are in. People think they can just assemble this blue ribbon panel on issues. But if you don't know the questions to ask, it becomes a waste. And so we do need people with scientific expertise in Congress asking these questions and coming up with ideas. From a personal level, I actually, so I work in bio, biomedical research and it's absolutely shaped the way I talk about healthcare and how we need to talk about the research side of healthcare as well as the implementation and how something you pay your tax dollars for that becomes NIH research, National Institute of Health Research, then pays to the development of a drug in academia that eventually becomes a drug in a pharmaceutical company that you can't afford. And then where's the breakdown there where the money we're investing in medicine isn't ever seeing a public good and it's just getting turned into profits. Of course, we need to stimulate the economy. But we need to make sure that people can actually afford the benefits that we're paying for as a society. And that resonates a lot with people throughout the district and understanding that side of it. You're running in a crowded primary of five candidates, one of them being State Senator Dalen Leach, who already has hundreds of thousands of dollars ready to spend on his race, which is still very little in comparison to the millions that Mian has. How do you hope to stand out and win over a majority of Democratic primary voters? Yeah, so like you said, Pat Meehan is one of the most prolific fundraisers in the House, and no one is going to be able to beat Pat Meehan with money alone. That if someone thinks they can just outdo him with TV ads, they're wrong. He's always going to have more money. And so this is always going to be a ground game and building grassroots campaign and field operations. And that's something that doesn't disappear after the primary either, the way paying for television ads, just, you know, they only last a week or two. And so I'm focusing on authentic communication. I am the only person in this race with the broad appeal and temperament to both energize the Democratic base to get out the vote and appeal across the aisle to to create the necessary coalition to beat Pat Meehan, especially someone like Dalen Leach is an incredibly polarizing figure who will, I believe, energize the Republican base to come out and vote against him. He says a lot of inflammatory things, and he has a very vulgar and bombastic temperament that I don't think will serve well in this district that's such a strong veterans community where people really want stable, thoughtful leaders who care about their problems. So lastly, how can folks get involved in your campaign? Yes, we have lots of volunteer options for people. We're a bottom-up campaign. If there's something you would like to do or you specialize in, uh, you can be the CEO of your own little piece of our campaign. Uh, and you can reach us. Uh, we're at mollysheehan.org. And you can email us at info at mollysheehan.org. We're also on Facebook at Sheehan for Congress and on Twitter at Pensy Molly. Okay, great. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, hopefully we can talk again soon. Again, this is Molly Sheehan, Democratic candidate for Pennsylvania's 7th, and I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter and Medium at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merchandise at millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.